everyone, and welcome to issue number 11 of Hey, That's Comics. I'm your host, Gary Webb. Now, unfortunately, while I had wanted Marcus here this week so we could, you know, dive into Joker, I can't seem to solve my audio issues from a Skype recording, and I didn't want to subject you to that audio mess once again. Now, I mean, this kind of sucks, as I'd really prefer to have him on, you know, as much as possible, but until I can find a solution, I just can't do it. If anyone out there happens to have a better solution for recording the conversation, given, you know, my limits of only having a cell phone, please hit me up. I could use the help. You can do so about that or really about anything else at Hey That's Comics on Instagram or Twitter. You can email me at Hey That's Comics at Outlook.com or you can use the link in the show notes to send me an audio message that I can play right here on the show. But that aside, I realized that what I wanted to do for Joker, I really needed, you know, to have it in a conversation or in a discussion. So I decided that what we're going to do is, you know, we're going to try some different things over the next few weeks as to what exactly I'm giving you here. This week, I'm again bypassing the soapbox. I mean, don't worry, it's not dead, but what I'm going to do instead is, while I'm going to focus on fewer titles in the weekly poll, but I'm going to do it by going more in-depth with my breakdowns. So, on tap this week, we've got DC's Flash 4 number 2, as well as the first installment of Tales from the Dark Multiverse featuring Batman Nightfall. Before you know, we switch over to Marvel with Absolute Carnage number 4 and X-Men number 1 in the X-Watch. Then we're on to the now part one of the fall and redemption of Hal Jordan and the Comic Club. We'll get to why the change later, but I need to bring you back behind the curtain for a minute here about a shift that we're going to have going forward. Now, in the past, I've tried to, you know, alternate weekly between the big two because, you know, I know that not everybody's an omnivore like me. Getting my buddy, you know, the co-host of The Enthusiast's Life, SB Nation's own Chris Maselli, to, you know, read at DC, it's quite a challenge, but... The realities are, she's still extremely sick and in the hospital, and so I'm stuck, you know, unable to work with, you know, having to take care of my special needs son. I just can't justify paying for both services. I mean, this is why I've had to put on hold my, you know, my goal of upgrading my setup, and I just can't justify the two when the money's, you know, needed elsewhere. I don't make a point of mentioning it, but this is why I added the link for donations. I mean, I don't necessarily think that, you know, what I do here warrants you giving me any money, which is, you know, why I basically ignore it. But it's there, you know, just in case. Moving on from that, until things settle, I'm go- I'll be switching on a monthly basis. And, you know, given my crisis hype and season two of Titans, it's DC Universe to start with. But, I, you know, I promise I still love Marvel and we will get back there. All right. With that out of the way, I want to say thanks for coming to get down and nerdy with me. And with that, let's kick things off with the weekly poll. The Weekly Poll. Flash forward number two from Scott Lobdell and Brett Booth continues the redemption of my Flash, Wally West. We pick up in the shattered Oval Office as he cradles the heavily wounded President Superman Calvin Ellis when the monster behind the attack tears into the room but, you know, is quickly put down by the staff given to Wally by Tempest Fugonaut. That World's Justice League answers Ellis' distress call as he paints the picture of what happened. He had been attacked by these creatures of, you know, dark energy, and in the Oval Office of Solitude, he'd begun tracking the energy back to another universe. This is the dark multiverse that, you know, gave us the Batman who laughs, if you're keeping track at home. Congress has launched an anti-life bomb at the dark matter that's, you know, enveloping the world, which, I mean, A, it's not going to work, and B, will kill millions. The League prepares to spring into action when Wally blasts them all with the staff to race off to handle this on his own. 
Haunted as he is by the events in Heroes in Crisis, he refuses to risk anyone's lives. He's seen too much death and rages at himself for having basically given up on life afterwards. He owes Tempest for the kick in the ass, but wishes he had been a bit more forthcoming when the Fuganaut chimes in via projection. I mean, he is a cosmic being, after all. He tells Wally to move on. Dark matter or bomb, millions will die either way, but having begun to find himself again, Wally pushes on. I mean, this is what I wanted to see. Admittedly, Heroes in Crisis was a big deal with, you know, some perennial characters senselessly dying, but beyond the strange circumstances that surrounded it, I've read a large portion of Wally's story, and whether it was his heart or losing himself in the Speed Force or whatever it may be, Wally always comes back, and I'm happy to see it happening. He arrives to find himself facing the Retaliators, a team of heroes whose Earth is also falling, and they trace this signal here, and guess what? There's a misunderstanding as they think Flash is responsible and we get a hero fight. Now, they certainly bear a striking resemblance to some characters you'd usually see, you know, from across town, but for all their powers, he's the fastest man in the multiverse. He's having the time of his life, finally cutting loose, and he manages to get into a position, destroying the dark matter with the staff. The Retaliators return home with the news that it's subsided there as well, leaving just the small matter of the bomb that's seconds away when Ellis, having been purged of the dark energy in Wally's attack, swoops in and saves the day. The League is grateful, you know, seeing him as a champion of hope and offering to help him in any way, but he hasn't come far enough for that yet as he races off to find the next world in jeopardy. We get some portentous rambling from Tempest about what the future holds for Wes where we cut to the event horizon where the dark multiverse is seeping out and here we get yet another moment I've, I mean in this case, been waiting for years for. On the dark world that will not die, we see huge rock formations that you know, depict those that died in Sanctuary, being looked at by Iris and Jay West, the children of Wally that you know, were erased back in 2011 following Flashpoint that you know, led to the New 52. We're finally getting to the heart of Wally's entire arc since rebirth. I mean, his wife Linda having no memory of them was bad enough, but his children seemingly lost from his existence as you know, what set off Flash War and him to Heroes in Crisis. I cannot wait to see where this is going. Continuing our look at the Dark Multiverse, our next stop is the first entry in DC's Tales of the Dark Multiverse line, where they're, you know, going to show us some dark takes on some of the biggest moments in their history. They'll be looking at the death of Superman and the Judas Contract later on, but here we're starting with Batman Nightfall from Kyle Higgins and Scott Snyder with Javier Fernandez on art. Now, if you're unfamiliar, Nightfall was the 90s storyline where Bane broke Bruce's back and he picked Jean-Paul Valley as Rael to take up the mail. I want to say the whole thing ran around a year, year and a half or so, but it ended up concluding when Bruce took the cow back from Valley as he had started to go over the edge. We get an introduction from Tempest as to how the dark multiverse works, which, now that I think about it, we haven't really gotten into. Essentially, it's where all the worst of our nightmares take form. If someone had a strong enough nightmare where, say, Joker turned Batman, you end up with a real Batman who laughs. Now, by its very nature, these creations cave in upon themselves since, you know, they're driving to cross over like we saw in Dark Knight's Metal. It's really an infinite well for them to dream up whatever they want with without breaking continuity. In a kind of meta yet obvious hook, readers believe enough in these concepts, you know, i.e., you know, they buy them. Snyder stated that the popular ones can, you know, follow last to come to wreak havoc in the main universe, you know, thus making them real. We then set the stage as events from Nightfall play out in order up to the point where Bruce attempts to take it back, but here he was unsuccessful. A crazed valley promises Bruce he'll show him he was the right choice for Gotham. 
In the years following, he rebuilds the city, separating it from the outside world, forcing its citizens to live by his tenants as he protects them. But Tempest informs us that once again, Gotham sits on a precipice. Thirty years later, we see a changed city with both the manor and cave reflecting its new owner as a clearly unhealthy Paul gets the rundown from his wife as he dons his armor before heading off to an appointment. I think it's worth pointing out that once his helmet is on, the wheezing that he'd been racked with stops, which, you know, gels with his past. Historically speaking, Valley gains strength when certain masks, as, you know, they trigger the system, which was the science slash magic that, you know, the Order of St. Dumas used to turn a college tech guy into the avenging angel of death, Azrael. At Wayne Tower, we see that he's turned Bruce into a signboard consisting merely of a head and torso, you know, to keep him alive until he admits that he was right. But after the deaths of the Bat family, it's just not going to happen. Azrael storms out as we shift to his assistants, Torchbearer and the Cardinal, and they execute the Penguin and Louis Ramos for not following the wall while they're being cheered on by the police. Later, a series of bombings at, you know, Acolyte Halls as well as a breakout from Purgatory, which, you know, is their prison, are the opening salvos in an uprising that Valley is ready to meet. A boy in his late teens manages to infiltrate the city, reaching Bruce, you know, be before being caught by the guards, which is when he's revealed to be the son of Bane, who, due to his dad's continued use of it, his body produces venom naturally. The super strength drug, not the guy we'll be talking about here in a bit. He saves Bruce and has an idea about the whole no-body thing, too. Azrael and his duo arrive at the cathedral, which is, you know, what used to be City Hall, and try to deal with the rioters, but you can tell that St. Batman is running out of gas in the tank, so he shoots up with some venom, which is directly hardwired into his suit. Escaping in the sewers, Bruce and Little Bee meet up with his mother, Lady Shiva, who, I mean, she was a nice addition. In the final chapter of the story, as well as here, I suppose, she's the one who retrained Bruce as he tried to regain his power, and she comes now to finish what they started as she activates a device that she says can fix him. We see the venomized Saint Batman struggling to support a wall as he's haunted by the hallucination of the spirit of Saint Dumas before collapsing. Torchbearer and Cardinal getting back to the cave to find all the venom gone, and that he'd been betrayed by Madeline to Shiva and Bane. In anger, they kill Madeline and are overconfident, you know, facing a child and an old woman, but are stopped short by the appearance of Bruce, looking to be in full Batman form. Shiva and Son battle Azrael as Bruce flies as an, an almost swarm of bats, having joined with what they call nanobats, as he kills Torchbearer. Valley takes control of the fight, ripping the boy's arm off to drink, you know, the venom straight from the source. He even has new souped-up Bruce on the ropes before, you know, being stabbed by Little B with his old Azrael flaming blades. This is the dark multiverse, and you do not get happy endings here. Having been broken by the years of torture, Bruce snaps, killing all three and embarking on a new mission to protect Gotham. This causes Tempest to, you know, turn to other worlds working for something to aid in the coming crisis. Now, next up is Death of Superman, so I doubt he's going to have much success, but this and Flash Forward keep alluding to a crisis, which, I mean, that's huge. DC's crisis arcs always bring big ideas and universe-changing events, and this upcoming one is something Snyder's been building towards, I mean, it's basically since he took over Batman, which, you know, led us on to through Metal and everything he's been doing over with the Justice League. I mean, this is shaping up to be a very big deal in 2020. Here we are at the penultimate issue of Absolute Carnage with issue number four once again brought to us by Don Cates and Ryan Stegman. And man, this has been one hell of a ride. The Venom symbiote having left Eddie for Bruce Banner starts out with Hulkman smashing Carnage, who's absolutely loving this turn of events. I mean, what can I say? He's crazy. Eddie and Pete get Dylan and Normie into a safe room and Eddie goat grabs some anti-symbiote gear taken from the jury from the Lethal Protector series. 
He's useless in here protecting the kids. He needs Spidey to do that. But while he tries to buy some time for the Codex removal process to finish with the sedated Avengers, armed with cap shield and assorted weapons, Eddie believes that he can at least pretend to be a hero for the 10 minutes he needs as he wades into the army of the Cult of Carnage. He's alone, feeling naked without the power and presence of his others against something that, you know, he couldn't beat on his best days as Miles' Carnage leaps to attack. Hulk and Carnage are slugging it out as Carnage seeks to sway him to his side. Hulk's having none of it as he starts ripping off the Grendel straight off of Cassidy, but Carnage manages to burrow some tendrils into his brain, ripping past Hulk's defenses. Miles has Eddie on the roast because, I mean, let's face it, he's still just a normal dude. Now, where, say, Spider-Man would, you know, get through to him by appealing to him to fight the influence. Hero or not, that's not who Brock is, so he uses electricity to shock the symbiote off him, much like Miles had done to him previously. As Eddie quickly fills Miles in, we get the revelation that the Symbiote Codex also transfers some of a host's powers with it. Now, I mean, I have to admit, I don't fully understand the surprise here. I mean, it's been glossed over for years, but th I believe that's how Venom gave Eddie the spider-like powers. It transferred Spider-Man's abilities and amplified them, so if anyone out there can clarify this, please reach out. Anyway, Carnage strips the Venom off of Hulk, absorbing it with the Grendel, pushing his power level completely off the charts. The futility of it all sets in when the Beacon of Hope appears as Cap takes his shield back as he, Wolverine, and the Thane attack Carnage. As they battle, Eddie can't figure out why the cult is still attacking the machines with the heroes out when Miles unveils that the Maker was shockingly a liar. The machine does extract the codexes, but it doesn't destroy them, meaning there's a bunch of souped-up codices just waiting for Cassidy. Cletus finishes off the heroes, taking flight to go awaken Noel as Norman breaks through to Peter and the boys. Things are looking grim when Eddie reaches the machine and breaks into it and the codexes merge together, creating something new. The new symbiote comes with the tactics of Steve Rogers, the rage of the Wolverine, and the power of the Thing, created as a unified Venom that races after Cassidy. Things have definitely reached a crescendo and will definitely be following the next two issues of Venom and issue five of this. But now... It's time for this week's X-Watch. After the glorious 12-week intro that, you know, reshaped their entire corner of the world, we're kicking off the dawn of X with issue number one of the relaunched X-Men from the mastermind behind it all, Jonathan Hickman, with Lionel Francis Yu on art. I mean, there's a lot riding on this, and I have high expectations, but the first thing that came to mind after I finished it was that it was not what I was really expecting. That's entirely on my fault. I mean, House and Powers were by definition about changing the game, and this is just the start of a much longer narrative, so we're a lot more character-focused here. We briefly start back with the first time Charles gave Scott some ruby quartz glasses, taming the raging energies of his eyes. It's a key moment because this is where Charles gains Scott's trust, leading to, you know, everything that came after. Here, we cut to the present as Cyclops and Storm are tearing through the final Orcus facility in an effort to put an end to their work that'll, you know, of course lead to Nimrod. They come to a veritable army of henchmen guarding the central lab and they call in their backup as Magneto and his daughter Polaris easily tear into the building before using the structure itself to drag the forces into the depths of the levels below. The scientists there actually devolve themselves into some Gorilla Grodd looking dudes, but I mean, come on, they have no chances. I mean, Magneto turns to deal with them while the others push on deeper. They free some captive mutants from stasis tubes, but come across an outlier. It's a human who's been hugely changed. They describe her as a post-human, which may not mean much at the moment, but as it was the post-humans in charge in the far future of Powers of Ten, we know it will be. 
back on Krakoa, we see how his reputation among the population plays so strongly to Magneto's ego. I mean, it's to the point where even his daughter Lorna is embarrassed. And now, after a brief stop back on the Orcus Sun Station we, to see the mysterious leaders, they consign their dead to the sun. Then we get where, you know, the issues cover fully comes into focus. We didn't talk about it, but the cover, I mean, it shows the entire Summers clan, you know, minus Hope on the moon. And that's because the House of Summers plus Logan are living in the blue area of the moon now. This is a fairly pivotal location, having, you know, been the home of Apocalypse and the, the Inhumans and, I mean, the Watcher at different times. But most importantly, at least to them, it's the site of Jean's second death as Phoenix during the Dark Phoenix Saga. But that's in the past, and what we get here is, you know, basically a family cookout with some strong character time, which it kind of feels like I haven't seen in forever. Things are great. Everyone's just, you know, enjoying being together. Well, I mean, Vulcan is, you know, picking on Logan, but, I mean, it's fun. It feels like forever since we got this, especially with this combination. It's been a decade since Wolverine and Scott could, you know, even be in the same room together, and, you know, I missed it. This is still the X-Men, though, and we end with a final stop at the Solar Station, where we find out that they have a resurrection process of their own. As I said, there's definitely a shift in tone here, but it's a needed one going forward to, you know, sustain the relaunch. The one last bit I'll bring up here is that they're continuing with a scaled-back version of the back matter that, you know, Hickman likes to work in. Here, all we really get is the floor plan of their moon home. Now, what's interesting about this is, kind of away from the others in their own little section, are Scott, Gene, and Wolverine, all with connecting bedrooms. It has some fairly big implications, you know, jive with some of the scenes we saw in the celebration on Krakoa. They may be in a more open relationship than previously, but, I mean, I guess the first law of Krakoa is make more mutants, so gotta do what you gotta do. Next week, we've got Marauders number one, which I hope this quality level keeps up. But for now, let's take a look at, at the fallen redemption of Hal Jordan in this week's Comic Club. The Comic Club. A little background before we dive in here with Green Lantern 48. This is immediately following the conclusion of the reign of the Superman, which, you know, returned the Man of Steel to the world of the living. It was as this was coming to a head that Green Lantern returned to Earth to find Coast City leveled by the cyborg Superman and his partner Mongol to construct the first of two giant engine cities that would have turned Earth into a mobile war world for them to conquer from. The heroes won the day and appeared to triumph despite the tragedy, here, though, with the adrenaline having been spent and the fight through, reality sets in as we join Hal devastated by the monumental loss. This was his home since day one, and everything he knew is gone. Coping is next to impossible, but Hal has perhaps the strongest will in the DCU, and with that to power his reign, he reaches new levels of strength as he recreates Coast City and everyone in it. Now, I'm not a mental health professional, but I don't think this is the best choice for, you know, coping with the tragedy. Luckily, I think I can back that claim up, as we're treated to Hal living out his delusion until the ring runs out of power and it all fades. A guardian appears to conduct him to a trial for using the ring in such a fashion, but Jordan's gone, and he absorbs the projection for a boost before rocketing off to where he can get more, firm in the belief that anything's possible with the power, if you will it hard enough. His entry into space is witnessed by a young artist named Kyle and his girlfriend Alex. They'll be back. Now, before I move on, I want to just mention how much I love the cover for 49 with the crazed Jordan grinning, wriggling his fingers, bearing 13 power rings. Definitely gets to the point, almost begging you to find out what's going on. It definitely did for me all those years ago, as I had missed 48, but jumped on for a bit from here. 
As he tears through waves of lanterns, seeking to block his way, he grows more desperate, more brutal with each encounter, culminating in Kilowog, Hal's old friend, the drill instructor of the Corps, being left broken. Arriving on Oa, the Guardians play their final card, freeing and reinstating the first Rogue Lantern, Sinestro, from his imprisonment inside the power battery, which harnesses the universe's will, which, of course, is Hal's goal. This is a big deal. I mean, as I mentioned, Sinestro was the first rogue, but at one time he was best friends with Hal and was considered the greatest lantern of them all in his time. He eventually treated his home planet of Korrigar as his own domain, ruling it as a tyrant, which, you know, is what prompted his fall. After escaping his original prison in the Antimatter universe with a yellow power ring from the engineers of Quark, they imprisoned him inside the power battery here in the heart of their power. Sinestro fully appreciates the irony of their reverse roles as Hal, with ten power rings upon his fingers, warns him to stand aside or die. Sinestro isn't really aware that, you know, the threat isn't hollow anymore, but he goes Hal into leveling the playing field, casting off the extra rings. Now, this has always kind of bugged me. As I see it, a single ring is only limited by his will and concentration, so, I mean, if he's actively using them all, I think it just, you know, split the sum into parts. To me, he should just, you know, have access to a supply, you know, ten times the normal size, but the output should change outside of, you know, maybe a confidence boost. But I digress. The two throw down with a vengeance as they snipe back and forth verbally as the Guardians merely look on, but for all the power they throw around, it comes down to a visceral physical battle, man versus man. Or, well, alien, but, I mean, you get the point. It climaxes with Sinestro gloating that he is one. I mean, just look at how far Jordan has fallen before Hal snaps his neck. His march to the battery is halted by the wounded Kilowog who tries to make a stand which causes Hal to commit his second murder in 30 seconds as he fries the flesh straight from his bones. He verbally lays into the Guardians as he casts off the ring before plunging into the heart of the battery. Their oath of non-interference, you know, is what caused this catastrophe, with Ganthet being the only one who had tried to prevent it, so the rest give all of their energy to Ganthet, dying in the process. He's hiding amongst their bodies when Hal shatters the battery, gaining all of its power. He flies off as Ganthet uses his power to form a new ring that's free of the need to recharge as well as the yellow impurity that, you know, weakened the others as he seeks a new champion. He's extremely weak after the events, though, and he picks basically the first guy he sees, which is Kyle Rayner stumbling out of a bar. Left with no explanation and half convinced that, you know, he just had too much, Kyle puts on the ring, you know, discovering that he's the new Green Lantern, which is a position that, you know, he carries on to this day. From here, Ron Mars gave us years of Kyle Rayner as the only Lantern left for all the universe that continued right up to the relaunch and rebirth while Hal continues down his dark path. Absorbing power from several sources, he would again try to undo Coast City's destruction, this time by remaking existence during the Zero Hour event, which is where he assumed the moniker Parallax. Now, this is a key point as we go forward, so keep that in mind. Eventually, after years on the other side, Hal did redeem himself during the Final Night event by sacrificing himself to reignite the sun. Later on, the presence of the Spectre, the embodiment of God's wrath, latched onto him as its host, and which is where we pick up the tale again, now in the character-defining hands of Jeff Johns. Rebirth brings us to Kyle, who is out in the farthest reaches of space, I mean, literally the final sector of the universe. After years of fighting on Earth, alongside the Justice League, he began to feel lost, so he left Earth to help the thousands of other sectors with, you know, no Green Lantern to defend them. He saves the people from the threat, but as they rush to him babbling in an alien language that he can't understand, he finally learns that the ring can translate and he receives their warning. Parallax is coming. Our scene shifts to Hal, who's enjoying an air show when a plane goes down, and he forces the Spectre to save the man. 
The Spectre is generally considered a force of good, but while they saved the man, he would just have joined, you know, the Father in Heaven, while it was really a drunk driver that they should have been punishing, and you know, that's the rub. Taking vengeance isn't Hal's way, and, and as they wrestle back and forth for control, Spectre reminds him that he must in order to atone for his actions as Parallax, and rather than fight him, should help him fight the darkness within. The struggle is real as we see the effects it's having on the Spectre, corrupting the spirit itself. Now, I mean, this seems awfully strange that Hal's dark side has that effect, but, I mean, there are reasons which we'll get to. We get a brief stop in New Mexico where some hikers are interrupted by a spaceship crashing. Inside, we find an unbelievably shaken and scared Kyle has returned with a casket, raving that it has a name before collapsing. Over in New York, we see Jon Stewart, again a Green Lantern, and Guy Gardner during, you know, his warrior days, meeting up with Hal for a Yankees game. Their get-together is cut short as people are overwhelmed by the presence of the Spectre and are compelled to confess their sins. Hal just can't t catch a break, and he takes off to Star City where William Hand, the Black Hand, has broken into Oliver Queen's house to steal a ring that Hal had given him years ago. Now, Green Arrow easily handles it, but the Spirit of Vengeance is here for more, as in Retribution, he helps him live up to his moniker by turning his right hand to coal, which immediately crumbles. Ollie is outraged, and Hal again attempts to assert himself, equally upset as he phases out. Mia questioned why Ollie would have the ring in the first place, and he feels it was for a situation just like this. We see Gardner lose control, destroying his bar warriors, injuring Stuart a bit, and cut to a pilot calling in that, inexplicably, Coast City has been partially rebuilt overnight. Wonder who's responsible for that? As the Lee takes a multi-pronged approach, taking care of Gardner while also searching warriors and the reborn Coast City. Everything at the bar was leveled, save a statue of Hal, while Coast City has all the rows and street signs that, you know, would be there, but there's only one building standing, Jordan's old apartment. Batman, who's, you know, had a number of issues with a few lanterns, is ready to take Hal down, but meets resistance, particularly from Jon Stewart, who fully believes Hal has changed and, if responsible, needs help. He makes a remarkable point that the problems between the two come down to basically one thing. Hal is the man without fear, and what is Batman without fear? Just another man. Now, I'm not entirely sure that I agree with that, but I mean, it drives the point home. But even Ollie isn't so sure after what happened with Hans, so off to confront him they go. As Carol Ferris, Hal's former boss and, you know, longest running and greatest love, is standing in the rain reminiscing among the wreckage of Ferris air, all of the planes are suddenly fixed as Hal greets her. They reminisce about the past as Hal confides his fears over his internal struggle up until the league shows. Tensions mount until Stuart seems to lose it and goes on the offensive. Hal and the Spectre wrestle once again as all hell breaks loose. At the Watchtower, Arrow's ring suddenly springs to life, duplicating itself, with the copy finding the still comatose gardener's hand, reviving him as he lashes out at the other heroes. Back in Mexico, Kyle comes to as the alien lantern Kilowog shows up, urging Kyle to use his ring. Now, clearly all the others save Kyle are, you know, not in their right minds as they battle, busting open the coffin to reveal that it's Hal's body contained inside with the Guardian Ganthet ready to defend it. The battle between Master and Lantern is pretty destructive and Kyle's forced to make his shield and can instantly feel a presence trying to overwhelm him as he sees the others in his mind's eye. Jordan, having been teleported by the Spectre, finds himself in his apartment that's, you know, pouring green light out of it, the source of which is his old Lantern. As he wonders aloud how this happens, he sees Parallax in the reflection, who says, We made it happen. Ganthet orders Kyle to defend the casket at all costs, which, you know, he brings to the Watchtower, and as we see the three-way battle for Jordan's soul between him, the Spectre, and Parallax, we get the crux of John's reordering of the entire Lantern mythos. 
Out in the far reaches, Kyle solved the mystery. For years up until Twilight, and you know, Kyle taking the ring, a lantern's biggest weakness was the color yellow. You see, green is the color of pure will, which, you know, powers the core, but there's a whole spectrum of emotions out there, and fear, which, you know, is the bane of willpower, happens to be yellow. Now, even more than that, there's an entity, an avatar for the elements, if you will, and Parallax is that for fear. He's a highly manipulative entity that, using fear, exerts control and has caused untold devastation. Eons ago, the Guardians managed to trap and confine it to the central power battery. It was phased into the myth of the yellow impurity to, you know, hide its existence, but its presence in the battery corrupted its power against yellow. The prevailing theory here is that it managed to slowly get its grip on Jordan, you know, through its connection to the ring and the battery, provided an explanation for the trademark gray temples despite being so young before truly taking over when Hal was devastated about Coast City, warping him into the downward spiral that followed. All of which, you know, leading to his freeing of Parallax fully when he destroyed the battery. Back in Hal's mind, he argues that it's just not possible that Spectre had laid the same thing out for him, but Spectre assures him that it is, and that's why he chose him. He had hoped to drive out the evil, but Parallax takes control. Oliver struggles, process everything, but hits the nail right on the head. I mean, there were thousands of Green Lanterns, and it was, you know, dormant for thousands of years. Why Hal, and why now? As we mentioned earlier, there was something else that, you know, was imprisoned in the battery, and from the shadows steps Sinestro, who, of course, you know, is behind it all. Kyle's no match, especially, you know, with his ring going haywires. Sinestro lays into the two of them with unconcealed disdain. Johns, he writes such a good Sinestro, and as we'll continue to see, he raises his stock right up along with Jordan's over, you know, the next several years. The Ascendant Parallax is reveling before being confronted by Ganthet, the reclaimed Lantern, Stuart, Gardner, and Wog, plus the Justice League, the Teen Titans, and the Justice Society. Back in space, Kyle's being overwhelmed as Ollie can barely manage the will to work even once, and surprise, he hits Sinestro with an arrow construct that enrages Sinestro, both from, you know, the pain and, you know, the sheer patheticness of the attempt. On Earth, even the combined might of the assembled heroes is barely containing parallaxes. They're battling near overwhelming fear from his presence alone when Jordan manages to wrench free, separating the three. Called onward, the Spectre leaves as Hal is being pulled into a tunnel of light when Ganthet, amidst struggling with parallax, sends off a beacon for Hal to follow instead. The, pardon the term, Spectres of his past encourage him to ignore the light and follow the beacon. Sinestro stalks in on Queen and Kyle when the ring flies from Ollie's hand, past the startled Sinestro returning to its owner. Consciousness slowly returns as the gray fades away and in a burst of emerald light, Hal Jordan makes his return. The two arch enemies have an extremely personal battle, but for the first time in years, we're talking you know, way before Twilight even, Jordan feels whole. Sinestro taunts Jordan with what he's going to do with his friends, but I mean, he crosses the line disparaging Kyle, the one man who carried it all when no one else could. At this point, Kyle arrives, and they overload Sinestro's ring, which, you know, sends him back to the antimatter universe with a bemused welcome back for Hal. The relationship between the two is a big focus for Jeff on through to the end of his run, and it fits the twisted through line. We finally get a true meeting between Hal and Kyle, who is drowning in feelings of inadequacy when Hal starts listing just everything that he's done. I mean, it's not like he just hid under his drawing board. And the two race off to the main event with Parallax. Things haven't been going well, as we join the other Lanterns, wondering at their next move, as now Parallax has control of Ganthet, and things are looking grim. Jordan and Rainer's arrival sparks some hope, but before they can make a play, they're stopped by Bruce in the League. Parallax is infecting everyone but the Lanterns across the globe, and as Bats tries to interject again, Hal just turns and decks him as the Lanterns make their move. 
Batman's attempt to regroup is interrupted by Alan Scott, who whose power is magic-based. I mean, the corpse haven't been created when, you know, they're rebooted with Jordan. Tells him to back off. This is a core matter. Again, he's not actually tied to them, but he's always been kind of with them due to, you know, the legacy that's involved. As the assault begins, they shine a light on how they're all in the court using the same technology, but it's a unique vision guiding their powers. I mean, Stuart as an architect, you know, thinks of his creations down to the smallest bit of his constructs, while Guy's constantly gives off little sparks due to his untamed will. It adds a nice dimension to help define everybody for all the new readers that, that came in with this and, you know, the ensuing relaunch. They're nearly defeated, but Hal grits his teeth and inspires the others to hold the line as they overwhelm Parallax and trap him for reinsertion into the new battery. Things are uneasy with Bruce, but they separate without incident, and we end with Hal and Ollie, the classic duo, just enjoying the turn of fate. The reason I love this arc so much is that when Twilight happened, Hal's book was struggling, hence you know the reboot, and Johns took everything from before and spun it into an entirely original direction, invigorating not only the franchise, but the universe as a whole going forward. Which of course leads us to the Sinestro War, which I know I had planned to get to this week, but it took way longer to get here than I planned on, and the war is an even bigger arc, so we're going to go ahead and stop here this week. But I'll tell you what. If one person reaches out to me through any of the usual methods and wants me to, I'll immediately drop part two as a bonus episode, and next week we'll cover both Identity Crisis as well as Infinite Crisis. We're not doing the full 87 issues of Infinite, just, you know, the core seven, but I'll fill in some of the broad strokes as we go. I'm not saying that 87 issues isn't something that, you know, I'd consider, but we're really covering these so that you can get a handle on what's going on in the following week's 52-issue run of 52. Think of it like the show 24, only instead of every hour of a day, we live through every week in a year in the DCU with no trinity. Instead, we get a complex narrative that, you know, threads through multiple storylines, following some of the lesser heroes coping with their absence in an extremely long format. It's absolutely phenomenal, and I mean, as a neat little bonus, it released in real time, on a weekly schedule. Now, I know what you're thinking. Gary, you cut this episode in half to avoid, you know, going too long. How are you going to get through 52 issues? And, I mean, as I said at the top of the show, these next few weeks we're experimenting with some different formats. Here, we cut out my ramblings on the soapbox. I dove in a bit deeper into the slightly smaller poll, and I think I did a bit with the club as well. Next week, I'm going to bring back a more focused and probably shorter soapbox, while, you know, giving a more broad strokes look at the new releases, and yet covering more titles in the poll. And then the following week, we're going to do an all-comic club. Now, I implore you to let me know your thoughts again through any of the methods we discussed at the top of the show, perhaps along with if you want that bonus release. Your feedback would be a tremendous help, so please reach out. I'm still stumbling through all this and could use some guidance. I want to thank you all for listening. Please take a second to, you know, drop a review wherever you're listening to me from. And remember, with great knowledge comes great responsibility. I'll see you next week.